Good morning. Today's scripture is from Matthew 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So today is the last Sunday of Epiphany. Um, sometimes we call it the season of light, um, but in a more technical sense, Epiphany is really the season where we talk about <clears throat> the revelation of Jesus as God. And the season starts um, on the 6th of January, or the first Sunday closest to the 6th, and extends all the way until the last Sunday before um, Ash Wednesday, which is this Wednesday. Uh, it starts in the sense of Jesus shows up, he's God, and so it's more of an, an intellectual ascent. Like, Jesus has shown up, and he, we need to believe that he's God. We get to Transfiguration Sunday, which is today, and it's Jesus is revealed as truly God, experientially. Um, I think that's a, a, val a valuable thing to think about. I'm not really going to talk about it much for the next 20 minutes, but I think it's a thing that we should think about a little bit as we, we think about Epiphany and the end of Epiphany, the coming of Lent, um, as we, we go through this. Um, we're going to pray now, but I want to say that there's something in, in the thing that Sheila read when she was up here giving the opening where the, the prayer said, dear God, accomplish your purposes in us during this time. And I think that, that is a really beautiful idea, and I, I want that to be our prayer right now. Dear God, accomplish your purposes in the next few moments as we consider your word. In your name, amen. Um, whoever's doing the slides, I'm sorry, I can only see about 10 feet in front of me. Um, can you go back to the slide with the actual scripture on it? <laughs> I'll give him a technical challenge, um, and, and I'll start talking. Oh, brilliant. 
I, I was thinking about this uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks that sometimes I get up here and I talk and I talk about the verses and everything and, and just sort of assuming that everybody knows what I'm talking about, forgetting that I have lived in this passage for the last couple of weeks and you all have not. And sometimes it's nice to have the words. Um, and so the words for you, we'll leave them up there for now. Okay. By the time we get to this passage, Jesus has been doing ministry for two, three years. He's been around, he's walked around. And at the beginning, it was actually really easy for him. He, he walked around, the crowds were large. He got to heal people and tell funny stories, occasionally cast out a demon. Good times, good times all around. Uh, but recently in his ministry, things have gotten a little bit more difficult. People have started to ask him, ask more difficult questions. The crowds are getting smaller. Um, people are really starting to mumble and grumble. Is Jesus really the Messiah or is he just another in a long line of miracle preachers that have come around? The teachers of the law have started to show up and ask really hard questions of him and ministry has become difficult for him. So he and the disciples find themselves in Caesarea Philippi a week before this passage. And Jesus looks at his disciples, things are rough, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they give him a bunch of answers. They say John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, prophet of old. He's like, okay, and who do you say that I am? And they give him a bunch of similar answers. And then Peter, who in my mind sounds a little like Ian McKellen in this particular situation, says, you are the son of God, the Messiah, right? Like it's very dramatic in my head. He's Shakespearean in my head. And Jesus is like, yes, you're right. That's what I am. And, and then he starts to tell them that he's going to suffer and, and die. Now, here's the thing. Within the, the Jewish community of the day, there was a lot of sort of mythology and ideas about what it meant to be Messiah, what the Messiah was going to do. And Jesus needed to, now that they had assented to the idea that he was Messiah, he needed to sort of disabuse them of all that mythology he, that was not actually real. And so he had to start telling them exactly what's going to happen. So he starts telling them he's going to suffer and die. And Peter never wanted to leave the chance to fail in the victories and the jaws of victory decides to rebuke Jesus and says no that's not going to happen now most people when they preach on this passage preach on what Jesus says next I want to put an idea in your head that I'm just gonna put it in your head for, for now and let you deal with it later um, that the relationship that Peter and Jesus had was such that Peter felt entirely comfortable rebuking Jesus and I've been thinking about that all day, actually. It's like this, this whole thing. And, and the thing that comes to mind about it is that oftentimes when we, pre when we preach on that passage, which is not the passage that I'm actually preaching on right now, um, we think about the reason Jesus rebuked Peter is because Peter rebuked him, which is not the case at all. P Jesus rebukes Peter because of what Peter says. And we'll talk about why in a, in a little bit. Um, but Peter is totally okay rebuking Jesus. And if we think that the reason Jesus rebuked Peter is because Peter was out of line, it says more about our relationship with Jesus than it does about Jesus' relationship with Peter. So I'm going to let you think about that for a little bit. Anyways, so that whole thing happens. Peter has a 
mishmash of a day, right? Like he, he starts by saying, you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to build my church on you. And then Jesus calls him Satan. So that's today for you. Um, so that day gets done. And a week later, they get, we get to our actual passage. And the funny thing is, the, so this, this story happens in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Matthew and Mark both say six days. Luke says, eh, around eight days. Hey, so he's a little, it's a little wishy-washy there. I read uh, some scholarly articles this week where this guy was like, oh, well, it's actually the same. It all depends on how you're doing your day math, whether you're doing it based on Jewish math, which, where your days start at, the, at sundown as opposed to sun up. So it's weird. Anyways, Luke says eight-ish days, and the other guys say six. So it, it's a week later, and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to go on a little retreat up this hill. Right? So they go up top of this mountain. There's actually a debate about which mountain it was. I don't think it matters, so I'm not going to tell you what that's all about. Um, but So they go up to this hill, and Jesus is transfigured. His face shines like the sun. His clothes turn dazzling white. All, I, I have visions of the Lord of the Rings where Gandalf the Grey turns into Gandalf the White. Um, that sort of thing happens. A few years earlier, a bunch of years earlier, centuries earlier, if I'm honest. Moses climbed a mountain, and the cloud of God comes down. God gives him the tablets. And when Moses, we're told when Moses descended the mountain, his face shone like the sun to such extent that he freaked everybody out. Like, like the entire camp just like couldn't handle it. So Moses had to wear a veil over his face the whole time. That's the picture that's being um, brought to us here by Matthew. Because Matthew is the most Jewish of the uh, gospel authors, and so he's, he's always hearkening back to old Jewish imagery so that, to tie Jesus to his messianic roots. And so this whole, the way that he describes this here is very similar to the way it's described with Moses when Moses got the law. So Jesus is transfigured, and all of a sudden Moses, the giver of the law, shows up, and then also, Elijah, the great, one of the greatest of the prophets, the only prophet to have not seen death, right? right? Like, there's this whole thing, I'm not going to go to it, where he descend, ascends into heaven riding a chariot of fire. It's very cool. Um, and so they both show up, and they're talking with him, and, and Jesus is revealed. And then Peter, 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 <laughs> Peter, with the, the confidence, the unearned confidence of a mediocre white man says, it's good for us to be here. Now, here's the thing. With this particular, they don't, we don't have the, the verse numbers here. But with, with this particular thing, every time I read this passage, I think that should have been a question. And, and then part of that is because I have like zero confidence in myself. But I always think Peter should be like, is it good for us to be here? Because this whole thing, it kind of feels like walking into your parents' bedroom when they're being romantic. And you're like, I don't know if I should be here right now. Um, and, but Peter, God bless Peter, he, it's good for us to be here, and honestly, the other, the other gospels say that he's a little bit scared, heard, and so he doesn't really know what he's saying, and so he's just, like, blurting things out, and I can relate to that, because I do that frequently enough, I get up here, and I do that frequently enough, um, and he, he says, let's build three things, three I'm going to say things right now. I'll explain why in a minute. It's for you guys. So there's, depending on your interpreter framework of this passage, 
which is to say what it is you're trying to prove. You're either going to say that Peter wants to set up shrines, which I've read people say, or he wants to set up tents in, re in relationship to the, uh, the festival of booths, which is a, a Jewish holiday where they, they, they set up these tents that they live in for a week to commemorate the exodus. As I said before, Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels, and so I think here he's leaning more towards the festival of booths thing than an actual shrines thing. Um, and so, but Peter sa says all this, and the reason that Peter does this is that Peter is misunderstanding what's happening in this moment. Peter thinks that there's been a massive paradigm shift, that like all of a sudden Moses and Elijah and Jesus are going to hang out on earth forever, and they're going to just get, like be there. Right? But this is a vision, which we get at the very end when Jesus tells them to tell no one about the vision. It's like, this isn't physically happening. They think it is, but it's not physically happening. And Peter thinks that this is a paradigm shift, and what this really is is a vision of what is actually happening. Like, the paradigm shift started way back when Jesus was born. You're just in the middle of it right now, and it's being revealed to them um, in such a way that they're able to, to see what is actually in, in play. So Peter says this, and then all of a sudden this, the cloud descends, similar to what happens with Moses when he goes up on the mountain, right? The cloud of God descends, and God says this thing. Now, a couple years before this, Jesus had walked down to the river to see his cousin John, and he said, I need you to baptize me, and, he brought, and, his, and, his, and John baptizes him, and when he comes up, the dove comes down and sits on his, on his arm, and God says, this is my son, whom I am well pleased, right? Now, there's some debate about whether or not anybody else heard this or if it was just a thing that Jesus heard. There's actually pretty good evidence to say that only Jesus experienced this thing. Nobody else saw it. But this thing happens. God comes down. God says this thing. Similar thing happens here. The cloud descends, and God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. God is saying, this is him. This is, and this is, this is that, that, that revelation bit that I was talking about just a bit ago, where it's like, it's not just, we're not just mentally ascending, agreeing with the idea that Jesus is Messiah. It's not just an idea anymore. Now it's a spiritual reality. God has descended and just declared to these people, this is my son. He is the Messiah. Listen to him. So there's this reality thing that happens there. And, and reasonably enough, they get freaked out and they fall on the ground and just don't know what to do with it. And then Jesus comes and he wakes, touches them. It's like, it's cool, we're good. And then they go down the mountain and they, and they discuss, discuss it. And the interesting thing about this is that the change that happens, the change that we're supposed to understand happening, just sort of like as implied, is that Peter, James, and John have been transfigured now they have a more real understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus' divine nature is viscerally real for them now. It's not just an intellectual idea. It's an experience that they've had. That's the traditional understanding of Transfiguration Sunday. But because I'm me, I want to look at this in a little bit different way. So we're going to rewind a little bit, and I want to talk about Jesus, because what else would you do in church? Jesus, the traditional um, formulation for understanding 
the incarnation is that Jesus was fully God, fully divine, and fully human. So Jesus was a 100% divine being, and Jesus was a 100% human being, right? So far as we can tell in life, it is impossible to be a 200% being. And so for centuries, actually, people debated how, is it, how did it work that Jesus could be completely God and completely human? And, and, they, and the answer they came back with was, it's a mystery, which is a cop-out. It's a reasonable cop-out. I mean, nobody's going to ever explain this. But it is a cop-out. But they couldn't just sit there with, it's a mystery. It's a mystery with a name. And so, you ready, Don? The name here is hypostatic union, which is a fun phrase to say. And sometimes if you say it the right way, it sounds dirty. It, I don't know why. I, that says something about my church upbringing. Um, so anyways, the hypostatic union, the, the word hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which is the same word we use in the classical definition of the Trinity. It's three hypotheses of persons in one usia substance. Um, and so hypostasis essentially means person. And so hypostatic union, what it means is the union of persons. It's essentially what they're saying is that there was this intermingling of these two, of their full personhood, such that 200% became 100%. It's a mystery. We're just going to leave it at that. And so there's this thing with it where Jesus is fully both, right? Now, depending on where we are and what we're trying to do with the gospel, when we think of Jesus, we will either lean more heavily towards Jesus' humanity or Jesus' divinity, depending on what we want to get out of it. Let's be honest, we're all a little bit selfish when we read the Bible. It's just true, a little bit. When we read this passage, it's really easy to lean into Jesus' divinity. It's very obvious, it's clear, like his face shines like the sun, his clothes change color, God shows up, two people who have long not been on the earth show up. It's very supernatural, and so when we read this passage a lot of times, it's easy to, to lean on the supernatural divine aspect of it. But I think, I think that if we lean into Jesus' humanity some, you get something a little bit different. So if we go back to the, a week before this, when Jesus is talking to them, I think that his humanity is saying, okay, things are a little bit rough right now. Things are getting rough. And his humanity is not necessarily real happy with it. Um, he knows what's coming. He knows the cross is down the road. He's at an inflection point in ministry because he knows that the teaching, healing, and casting out demon portion of his ministry is now done and that now it's changing. He's headed towards the cross. So things are a little bit different for him right now. And so when he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. It brings him joy that somebody can see who he is. And then when Peter rebukes him and he goes, he goes at him, like, get behind me. Satan, he's not rebuking Peter so much as he is the idea that he wouldn't have to die on the cross because that is a temptation for him. Because as a human, he doesn't want to suffer and die because this is the reality of humanity. The most basic need and desire of every human is to not suffer and die. Like everyone, even unless you're like, deeply clinically depressed, nobody wants to suffer and die. Jesus is fully human. He doesn't want to suffer and die. He knows this is coming. And so when Peter says, no, that'll never happen, Jesus has to rebuke it because that's a temptation 
too hard for him to handle. And so he rebukes him. And then we get a week later and they go up on the mountain for this thing. And then we have this whole revelation of, of everything. And he's talking with Moses and Elijah. The other, the other um, Mark and Luke say that they, they're discussing his soon departure. Literally his exodus. Is, and, then, and then God shows up and God says, this is my beloved son. The wording is important here. This is my beloved son. It's important. Jesus is at a point in his ministry where he's looking at the future, and the future involves him dying on a cross in a violent, terrible way. And as a human being, he is deeply opposed to that, that future for himself. And he needs something to say, you can do this, you can, and we've got you. And that's what happens. When he was baptized, right, and God comes down, this is my beloved son, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased, that was what he needed to, to eject himself into ministry. And that's how he managed to do the next two or three years of ministry, is that he knew that God was behind him. He had that behind him. Here, he's at this inflection point. He's coming to a new point in his ministry, a new direction in ministry, where his ministry is headed towards the cross, and he needs something, and that's what he gets here. He gets God saying, I have your back. I believe in you. And I know it's weird, because we, we want to think Jesus is like the perfect, perfectly realized human being and God and everything, right? And that there's no way that Jesus has any self-doubt but Jesus is fully human. Self-doubt is part of being human. It's not sinful to be, be doubtful. I mean, Jesus was perfect and, and, and sinless. Self-doubt is not part of sin. I mean, we all doubt. And I have no doubt that Jesus had self-doubt as well. And he needed that. He needed that community of of the divine in this particular instance to say, we believe in you, we know you can get there. We know this is where you're going and we've got your back. And that's why Transfiguration Sunday is so important. This is, like I said, an inflection point. We, get, we start Lent on Wednesday when we start thinking about seriously what the cross means. And what we learn from this passage is that the, we don't get to the cross without the community that Jesus had around him. Because Jesus, as a human, doesn't want to suffer and die. Jesus, as God, knows he needs to. But it's only in this community that he's able to do that. Now, here's the thing. This is the way it works for us. Change always happens in community. Jesus is able to change the world because he has the community of the of the Trinity and the community of his disciples around him, helping him to move forward. Change happens in community. You know, the 12-step the programs, AA and Al-Anon and everything, you know why they work? It's not because the steps themselves are inherently magical or anything. It's because you have to do them in community. It is literally impossible to do all 12 steps on your own outside of community. There are at least four that require that you actually talk to somebody. Change happens in community. Social change happens in community. Martin Luther King Jr. doesn't become Martin Luther King Jr. without the community around him pushing for that social change.